Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
What a gorgeous song that is. From a guy who comes from a very heavy rock world, I really appreciate that song. All right, Ecclesiastes 2. Stand, please. 1 through 11. Verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. This was also vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched it in my heart to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their life. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove, acquired male and female servants, and had the servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered myself silver and gold and the special treasures of the kings of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers and the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And here's the good stuff. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all of my labor. And this was my reward for all of my labor. Then I looked upon the works that my hands had done and all the, the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There is no profit under the sun.
Hi. Good morning. How are you? You doing okay? We have been studying the book of Galatians. As we've been studying the book of Galatians, you may have noticed that there was religious controversy. Paul told the church at Galatia what the truth was, according to Christ, and then people came along, also religious, people who prayed to the same God, and they had a controversy with Paul. They disagreed, and therefore they wanted to gain followers to themselves instead of people following the Pauline doctrine. For the last 2,000 years, the church has been engaged in multiple controversies. And you can read it. You can read the church fathers debating back and forth with each other. You can see the difference between the reformers when they argued about things like communion or things like baptism. Or... And so there's been debate. There's been argument all the way along. Now with the advent of social media, now there's so much arguing going on about Christianity. So how are you going to sift through all of that, knowing that it is a 2,000-year-old problem? How are you going to be settled? How are you going to be okay? How are you going to reach the point where you feel like, okay, I... I think I believe in Christianity correctly. How are you going to know that? How are you going to come to that conclusion? Well, the question is always not what do you think. The question is what does the Bible say? Now, I have to put a caveat on that. Not what does the Bible hopefully say or not what do you prefer that the Bible says? But what does the Bible say? And to my way of thinking, whatever the Bible says, that should be the end of the argument. That's right. Christian people ought to be able to rally around the Bible and say, well, this is what it says, and therefore this is what we believe and therefore, this is how we conduct our lives. And therefore, this is how God has revealed himself to be. And so I'm going to adjust my thinking about God to comport with what God has actually revealed about himself. Sadly and unfortunately, you just don't see a lot of that online. So you can't change the world. You can't get everybody to agree with you. You, you can't please all the people all the time. I think I just coined a phrase there. Um, you can't please everybody. In the end, you have to know in your own mind, in your own conscience, in your own spirit, you have to know what it is that you believe that you are willing to throw yourself out into eternity on. My thinking is when it comes to your ever-living, never-dying soul, you should not risk that on the opinions of other people. You should always go back to, yeah, but what does the Bible say? 
And that is why we spend so much time here at GCA going through the Bible verse by verse, not missing anything, and trying to talk in some depth about what it says so that we can adjust our thinking according to what it says. There are people online who uh, debate with me, want to argue with me, because I say what the Bible says. And they say, well, then what it means is, or what you are claiming the Bible says is actually some kind of allegory that actually means some other thing, and that is why I am really (laughs) emphasizing and really pressing the necessity of paying attention to what it says. That should be the end of all controversy. The Bible says this. Now, last week, we looked at Galatians 5, and we looked at what the Bible says about your flesh and the spirit of God and how they contend against each other. It stirred people up. It got people kind of frustrated because there are people out there who think that once you become Christian, then that's it. You don't sin anymore. You're you're good. You you carry on in, in a life of absolute holiness and You never stumble, never fall, and those people, for some reason, choose to write to me and tell me that what I said was wrong. Okay, so my question to you is, uh, did I say anything last week that wasn't what the Bible says? No. Because what the Bible says is, we Christian people struggle, and that's a fact, but I also think that's a comfort which is why all of you nodded at me and said amen to me, because it's good to know that you're not the only failure in the room. I mean, when you've got the Apostle Paul saying, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, the thing I hate, that's what I do. Until he reaches the point of saying, wretched man that I am, he recognizes his own inability to be holy, to be righteous, and so certainly he could not write anything that would say you can satisfy God and obligate God on the basis of you, your flesh, your law-keeping, your works, your goodness, your personal holiness, He would not write that because he assessed himself as being wretched. He's the one who said that he was the chiefest of sinners. And I think most of us would think, yeah, but that was before I got here. Because we all, through the Holy Spirit, through the revelation of God in our life, we're all aware of our own sinfulness and our own inability to accomplish the things that we truly desire. What does the word say? If you pay attention to what the word says, it is a comfort to your soul. If you pay attention to the honesty of the Bible, it will meet you right where you live. If you pay attention to 
the failures, the faults, the difficulties that the biblical authors themselves went through, then you'll find yourself in the Bible. And you'll say, I'm so glad to know that even the great heroes of the faith struggled like I do. It's good to know that this world is not our home. It's good to know that this flesh and blood right now is not the end of the story. And it's good to know that we have a Savior who is a perfect Savior who saves perfectly and completely because if it was left up to you, you can't do it. And the Bible says that over and over and over again. So to my holiness friends out there, I wish you well, but the Bible says you're kidding yourself. The Bible says you desperately need a Savior just like the rest of us do. Did I make my point? Yes. Okay. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 24. Jesus Christ, who ever lived, who was always at God's right hand, came to planet earth and took on human flesh. And the reason he took on human flesh, according to the writer of Hebrews, was partially so that he could identify with our weakness, that he knows what we're like. God knows that we are just dust. And so God and Christ and the Holy Spirit recognize our incapability and that we desperately need someone to intervene on our behalf if there's going to be any hope for us. So Jesus Christ came in the flesh specifically for the purpose of being crucified so that he could be the ultimate sin sacrifice on behalf of all God's people. But because he laid down his life in obedience to his father, his father also raised him up to life again, which is why the writer of Hebrews would say, and now he ever lives to make intercession for us. So the process of the life of Christ was death and then life. We think of our process of our lives as being we're born and then we live and then we die. But the reality is we live for a little while so that we can die so that we can ever live. If you're in Christ, then you are going to ever live in the presence of God. If you are not in Christ, you are going to ever live under the punishment and wrath of God. But either way, there's a whole lot more living to do. Well, Paul also sees the Christian life following that paradigm of death and then life. And so starting in verse 24, he says it very, very briefly. And we're going to read some of his expansions on this idea today. Because 
when he was writing to the church at Galatia, he's writing to people who he's already taught. He's already been among them. And therefore, he can speak in a sort of shorthand where he just has to remind them of certain principles. And they go, oh, yeah, that's right. He told us that. But when he's writing to churches that he hasn't actually visited, like the church at Rome, then he can expand on these things. It's necessary that he expands on these things because he is teaching them these principles. And so first we're going to look at the shorthand, and then we're going to go and look at Paul's more expansive treatise on this idea of death and life. What he says in verse 24 of Galatians 5 is that he draws a parallel between our Christian lives and Christ our Savior, who is the model for our Christian lives. Christ our Savior died and then lived. So Paul says, that's what it is to be a Christian, that you are going to die to yourself so that you can live. Verse 24 Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Okay, so we've been talking about this conflict between the flesh and the spirit. So what do we do as Christian people? Do we recognize that conflict between our flesh and spirit and then just give up and say, oh, well, there's nothing I can do. I guess I'll just sin all the more so that grace can abound to me. I I don't know what else to do. Paul says that knowing the deeds of the flesh, knowing the corruption of your flesh, he then says, mortify the deeds of your flesh. Mortify means kill it. Get rid of it with extreme prejudice. Now that, by the way, is something you will not do and cannot do until the Spirit of God, number one, Let you know how bad you really are. First, the Spirit of God has to convict you of your own sinfulness and your own desperate need of a Savior. But then the Spirit of God will also empower you to begin mortifying the deeds of your flesh. Last week, as we were doing Tom Tharp, this is your life. As we were doing that last week, we talked about the fact that Tom isn't like he used to be. And it's not only just because he's older. It's because things have changed in his heart and his mind. His desires are different. He desires to please God, and therefore, he is in the process of killing those things that he knows are displeasing to God. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. The same way that Christ Jesus was crucified in the flesh, that's why he came and took on flesh, so that he could be crucified. The same way that Christ was crucified in the flesh, all we who belong to Christ are then told, crucify your flesh. Now, obviously, he's speaking of spiritual principles here. He isn't saying, go out and crucify yourself. That'd be a tough one. Be hard to hammer in that second nail. (laughs) But now those who belong to Jesus Christ mortify, crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now, he just got done giving us a list of what those passions and desires look like. 
so that we have a good sense of what the deeds of the flesh are. And now he's saying, quit it. Kill it. Do it with extreme prejudice. Mortify it. Recognize that it is rebellion against God and just quit it with its passions and its desires. But if you do that, the reason I was emphasizing the only way that you will do that is if the Spirit of God convicts you of your sinfulness and then also empowers you to kill off your fleshly deeds, if you do that, it is by the Spirit of God. Therefore, you're going to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. That's verse 25. Because if we crucify the flesh, then we're going to live. There's that same paradigm. You die, you live. If we live by the Spirit, then let us also walk by the Spirit. Let that be our habit of life. Let that be our practice of life. As opposed to the practice of sinful living, instead we learn how to walk by the Spirit. Now in a moment, he's going to give us yet again more examples of what it is to walk by the Spirit. But he has already told us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, sacrificial love and joy, and a peace that passes understanding. Patience, long-suffering, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the characteristics of someone who is walking and living by the Spirit. It is so much more than just giving intellectual assent to a series of facts that you know about Christ. It is so much more than just knowing the doctrine of Christ. It is putting into action those things that you know about Christ and what he did for you. And because he was good to you and because he loved you and because he saved you, because he was long-suffering with you and patient with you, then you're called on to also be like that. He's the Prince of Peace. That's why you're called to have peace. He's the one who's put up with you for a long time. That's why you're called to put up with other people. He sacrificed himself for your eternal good. That's why you're called to sacrifice yourself in love toward other people. That's what it is to live by the Spirit and to walk by the Spirit. And in walking by the Spirit, in living By the Spirit, in that process, you crucify your flesh. You mortify the deeds of your flesh. Now, those two verses are all Paul has to say to the church at Galatia about that. That little bit of shorthand is enough that they would remember, oh, yeah, he taught us all that while he was here among us. But let's go to the book of Romans where he's going to write much more expansively about this topic so that we can get a fuller concept of Pauline teaching on the idea of crucifying your flesh and living by the Spirit. We're going to start in Romans 6. So turn there. Romans 6, this entire chapter, is about that very thing because Paul hadn't been to Rome yet. 
So in order for them to understand this teaching, he had to write about it more extensively. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, I mentioned that already. It is typical of people who don't understand what the Bible says in its totality for people to say, well, then grace, good, that covered all my sinfulness. Now I can live like the devil. It doesn't matter because it's all under the blood. It's all nailed to the cross. It's all taken out of the way. It is true that it's all under the blood. It's true that it was all nailed to the cross. It's true that it is all taken away. That is all true. But Paul does not say, given that truth, it doesn't matter how you live. Instead, what Paul says, because that's all true, live like it. Live like Christ has separated you from the rest of the world. And what are we going to say about it? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Look, if you're a big fan of grace, which I am, if you're a big fan of God having opportunity to show grace, then it would be real easy to leap to, well, I'm going to make him appear really graceful. Watch me go. I'm going to make sure that I require maximum grace I'm going to live just as bad as I can, just in order that God is glorified in the way he is gracious to me. But Paul takes the opposite approach and says, because you've been saved by God, because you've been redeemed by Christ, for that reason, you live differently than the whole rest of the world that has not been saved, that has not been redeemed. And if your thinking is that you're going to continue in your sin so that grace gets greater credit so that grace in your life looks even more gracious. If that's the way you're thinking, he says in verse 2, God forbid, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? When did we die to sin? Well, when Jesus Christ died, he died for sin. And if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, then we also reckon the deeds of our flesh to be dead. It's exactly what he told the Galatians, that we are to mortify, that we are to crucify the deeds of the flesh. And if you, in fact, have died to sin, then how can you still live in it? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in sin? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Paul just created the parallel that I started with 20 minutes ago. That Christ came to the planet, died, raised again, is ever living. We, as Christian people, even typify that in the fact that we are baptized. And we are baptized into his death. 
when you are put down under the water, if you are not brought out by a power larger than yourself, stronger than you, then you're going to stay dead. You're, you're just going to lay there in the baptistry and not get up again. That would be a sad Sunday, wouldn't it? That would be. The very fact is, when you are put under the water, it's in the likeness of the death of Christ, and then you are raised up out of the water in the likeness of his being raised again to life. And if you know that, and if you are baptized, I know every time I've ever baptized anybody, I've tried to stress that, that that's what baptism is typifying. If you know that, then you know that you have died in the likeness of Christ and raised again to newness of life. Therefore, that body of your flesh is reckoned dead, and you are now walking in this newness of life in the Spirit of God. Therefore, why are you still walking like the dead body that you already killed? If the body of flesh is dead, and if you claim that's true of you, why do you walk like it's not true? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The same way that he resurrected to life again after he was dead, we resurrect to life again after we are dead. After our sinful flesh is reckoned dead, we walk by the Spirit. Knowing this, that our old self, that's a nickname for our flesh, for our natural, sinful, fleshly body, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him and that our body of sin might be done away with so that we will no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Okay, That's a realistic uh, assessment there that Paul just came to. You know when you're going to quit sinning? Do you know the exact moment that you're going to quit sinning? The minute you die. Yeah, dead people are done sinning. And so Paul says, if that is true, a basic fact that dead people quit sinning and you reckon yourself dead to this world, dead to your flesh so that you are raised again to walk in Christ, well then why would you walk again in the sins that are already dead? Has anybody here ever seen a dead person get up and sin some more? No. No, I'm just not done. I was so enjoying the sin thing that even death couldn't stop me. I'm going to get up and party hardy. No, that's never happened. And so Paul says, based on that reality, if you reckon your body, if you reckon your flesh to be dead, because you have been baptized into Christ and into his death, if you reckon your body to be dead, why are you walking around like you don't believe that? Instead, you should walk according to the Spirit and no longer be a slave to sin, because he who has died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, 
we believe that we shall also live with Christ. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, and death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The typification continues. Christ died on the cross for sin, not his own, but for ours. That's why we say it's a vicarious death. He died as our substitute, but what nailed him to the cross was our sin. And so because of sin, he died, but he only had to die once, once for all, and then he ever lives. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So he died to sin, he lives to God. Then we are to walk in the parallel way. We die to sin, we walk in the spirit. Our lives are supposed to be wrapped up in the pursuit of the righteousness of the life that God himself demonstrated in his son. Knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, this is verse 9, is never to die again, and so death is no longer master over him. But the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, now he's going to apply it to you, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So that is the Pauline teaching on this parallel between the death of Christ, who rose to live everlastingly, and then you, because you are in Christ and because you are baptized into Christ and because you say that you are a Christian, are supposed to reckon your life along the same parallel, which is you die to yourself, you die to your flesh, you die to your sin, but you are alive in the spirit. You are alive to God. By the way, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin is what is known as a present imperative. Back when we were teaching through the book of Romans, I stress that because what it means is do it now and do it now and do it now (laughs) and do it now. Whatever your present is, whatever moment you're present in, this is an imperative To the present. So do this all the time. Do it nonstop. Consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, here's another present imperative. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin 
shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. It's the same thing he's talking about to the Galatians. This is consistent Pauline theology. He says that you are under sin, and sin is a master over you as long as you're under the law. Because what can the law do? It can't help you. It can't save you. It can't lift you up. It can't make you better. All it can do is say you're wrong. All it can say is, there you go again. You missed it again. That's all the law can do for you. So there is this constant reminder of your own sinfulness and your own incapability and your own inability by the law. But if you die in your flesh, if you die to your sinful proclivities and are alive to God in Christ and walking by the Spirit, you're not under that law. So that law can no longer jump up and condemn you and tell you how wrong and tell you how bad you are because you're walking by the Spirit of everlasting life, that same Spirit that redeemed you and saved you eternally. And that is a much happier, more settled way to live. I'll say it again. That is a much happier, <laughs> more peaceful, more settled way to live. Amen. It's about time. <laughs> Sin will not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Once again, May it never be. God forbid. Uh Uh-uh. No. Goose egg. Nada. No. You're not supposed to live that way. May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin which results in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, can I get a witness? That though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I like that phrase. Slaves of righteousness. You live out your life in a righteous way, walking by the Spirit of God in the peace of knowing your redemption, knowing what Christ has done for you. And that is a far better way to live, I keep saying. You live like that, you walk like that because you recognize that he has freed you from sin. He's paid the penalty of your sin. He is a completely perfect sin sacrifice. Therefore, your sin is taken as far as the east is from the west. It is separated from you completely. It cannot get you. It cannot condemn you. You are completely free from the law which would condemn you. And instead, you're able to walk freely and happily and joyfully and peacefully before God, knowing that through Christ, your relationship with God is solid, secure, and eternal, and that you're not afraid 
afraid the whole rest of your life that maybe you've done something that God is going to condemn you for. You recognize, you understand, and you walk out your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you become slave the same way you were a slave to sin. You become a slave to righteousness. You really just kind of can't help yourself because the Spirit of God is driving you in your life. You've heard me so many times through the years say that the Holy Spirit is the governor on your behavior. That's what I'm talking about. The Spirit of God inside you is instructing you and driving you and teaching you and making you slave to righteousness. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, notice how honest Paul is there. I think we would all agree that once you go down that road of turning your body over to lasciviousness, uh, you end up doing more, wanting more, because there's no real end game when you're sinning. There's no point at which you can say, you know what, I'm satisfied with the amount of sin I've had this lifetime. I'm good. No, you're just going to go for more and more and more sin. I have often compared sin to smoking. Not that I'm saying smoking is a sin, but I, has anybody here ever smoked a cigarette? I mean, even just, okay, that a minute ago when I said smoked, a few hands went up, and I said a cigarette, more hands went up. Okay, so when you smoked that first cigarette, uh, did it get good to you right away? No, you cough, you hack. (laughs) I remember sitting at the kitchen table in Cleveland, Ohio, and we had a friend who would come over who smoked, a friend of my parents. And I was sort of fascinated by it, so my dad sat me down. I was maybe 11, you know. Here, you want to smoke a cigarette? Try it. And, uh, And I did, and coughed myself blue. It was an awful experience. So everybody who ever smoked more than one cigarette, despite that reaction, said, I'm going to try that again. I'm going to do that again. In fact, I'm going to keep doing it until that's not my reaction and until I enjoy it and become addicted to it. And keep going back for more of it. That's how sin works. The first time you do it, your conscience kind of bugs you about it. It's, oh, I probably shouldn't be doing that. But you'll go back and do it again. And the second time you do it, it doesn't bother you quite so much. And then eventually, those things that used to bother you don't bother you anymore because your vices have become habits. And you're perfectly willing then to accept that as part of your life. Well, it's just how I am. Okay, well, Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you constantly presented the members of your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, 
So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification, in separation from this world. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Notice that he says you can only be one or the other. You're either a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. Because back when you were a slave to sin, you were free from righteousness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Let me see if I can put that in a more modern vernacular for you. Uh, Anybody remember what you used to be like? <laughs> yeah, I was, I'm glad you joined me with your hand up, yes. Yeah, I can look back on me and look back on my life, and sometimes it's a little bit frightening, the places I've been and the things I've done. And so Paul asked the question, those things, what did they benefit you? What was the upside of those things? In fact, he says, now that you're a slave to righteousness, you're embarrassed by those things. You're ashamed of those things. But what benefit were you deriving from those things? Used to drink a lot. Used to get drunk a lot. That was not I used to drink a lot. I used to, I'm just saying, if you used to drink a lot, if that was your sin of choice, what did you ever derive from that? Aside from spending a whole bunch of money on stuff that later just gave you headaches and you woke up the next day and expelled it out of your body in multiple different ways. I'll leave that alone. What did it ever do for you? For those of you who used to smoke and now don't, what, what did you ever gain from the smoking aside from maybe trying to look cool with your friends? What did you ever gain from it? Maybe some emphysema? Maybe some lung cancer? Maybe a whole lot of wasted money. But what did you really get from it? Well, okay, expand that kind of thinking to every sin that you can think of. What, what did you really get from it that was beneficial to you, especially if we're thinking in eternal categories? What eternal benefit was there to the sin that you loved so much back when you were slave to sin? Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and having been enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. The contrast is your sin, your flesh, your behavior. What did it get you? Nothing. Walking after the Spirit. Walking after righteousness. Walking after the things of God. What benefit do you get from that? Oh, only eternal life in the presence of God where there is abundance of joy where there's no sickness and no death, where God's going to wipe away every tear. Does any of that sound good? Okay, so there's no benefit to how you used to be. There's great benefit to being a slave to righteousness. For the wages of sin is death, 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Just so you get the contrast, the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life, which is far, far better. Turn over two chapters. Turn over to chapter 8. I'm just going to read the first 17 verses because Paul likes this topic so much he keeps going back to it. Chapter 8, starting at verse 1, a verse that you should all have tattooed to your memories by now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so Paul told the Galatians, don't walk by the flesh, walk by the Spirit. The extra benefit of walking that way is that you have fulfilled the law. Fulfilled the law. Satisfied the law. The law wants to condemn you. The law wants to point out all your incapabilities and shortfallings. The law wants to hold you under the restriction of the law. And and you can't satisfy it. You can't fulfill it. You can't do it. But if you are walking after the Spirit of God, you have satisfied the requirements of the law. And they are all fulfilled in you when you do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh mind the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death. He already told us that. The wages of sin is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. A minute ago, Paul asked the question, what benefit did you get from those things that you're now ashamed of? Now he says... If you're walking according to the flesh, it is impossible for you to please God. Again, the contrast is huge. Walk by your flesh. Follow after your sinful proclivities. Not only are you not able to please God, but you get no benefit from the way you are living versus walking after the Spirit, getting eternal life, getting peace and joy in this lifetime, in the knowledge that your relationship with God is secure through Jesus Christ. You have satisfied and fulfilled the law so that the law is no longer binding on your conscience. And through the Spirit, there's life and peace. 
And the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile toward God. And it's not subject even to the law of God. It's not even able to be subject to the law of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, I like that however right there. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's that same instruction. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Kill the deeds of the flesh. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption Remember in the book of Galatians, we came across that same idea, adoption. I told you that it was huiothesia. It is son placement. It is God placing you as his child. For if you are in Christ, you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received that spirit of son placement as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. Because God the Father made you his children, you now have the right to go to him and cry that he is your father. The Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are the children of God, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. There it is again. Death first, life after. Very consistent Pauline theology. Okay, back to Galatians 5. We've gotten two whole verses so far, and I feel good. I feel like we're making progress. The next two verses have a big six separating them. I don't like that chapter division because the next two verses go together. Paul is forming yet another contrast. First, he says, let us not become boastful. What is the most often cited sin in the Bible? Pride. Pride. Here he is going back to that core element. Don't be boastful. Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant. Don't be full of yourself. And by the way, once you get full of yourself, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to challenge everybody else. I'm better than you. I'm smarter, stronger, run faster, jump higher. I'm just simply better than you. So don't let us become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. How come you get what I want? 
when after all, look at me. I like me a lot. You should like me as that much too. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? It's all about me. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. That's the way not to be. Chapter 6, verse 1 then tells you how you ought to be, which is why I don't like the chapter division right there. Because then Paul says, care for one another. Rather than being boastful against each other, rather than envying each other, rather than challenging each other, take care of each other. And brethren, if a man is caught in any trespass, that would be the chief time for Christians to pounce, especially online especially if they can find something that you did wrong. They can't wait to say, oh, you're supposed to be a Christian. Oh, I saw that. Oh, you did that. And oh, heaven forbid, it's a preacher. And they find out that you did something wrong. I mean, pile on, pounce as a group. The biblical instruction, again, if we're paying attention to what the Bible says, the biblical instruction is, brethren, Even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are walking in the spirit, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And how do you do it? In arrogance, in challenging, in envy? No, how you do it is in a spirit of gentleness. Each one considering yourself, lest you too be tempted to sin. Part of the problem I have with people who consider themselves the fruit inspectors, you know what I mean? The people who are constantly looking at other people to see if they can find something wrong with you. The reason I don't engage in that activity is because I got enough to do worrying about me. I'm all the trouble I can handle. I don't need to worry about you. You do you. You take care of you. And if I find that you are in some trespass against God, my command, according to the Bible, is to help restore you, to bring you back to faith, to comfort you, and to do that in a spirit of restoration and gentleness. And consider myself, that I myself am capable of every sin you're guilty of. In fact, I shouldn't say I'm capable of it. I'm probably guilty of it. Whatever sin I catch in you, that's my problem too. So I'm not to be arrogant about it. I'm not to be boastful about it. Instead, I'm supposed to help you, restore you, pick you up, lift you up. Restore you to Christ in gentleness. And the opposite of challenging one another and envying one another and boasting about yourself. The opposite of that is verse 2. And you should bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is love one another. Sacrifice for each other. By this will all men know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And in love for one another, you would restore one another. In love for one another, you would provide for one another. Out of love for each other, 
you would help one another through the difficulties of this life rather than pointing at each other and boasting, I'm better than you because I didn't do that thing that you did, and I recognize you're doing it because I'm better than you, and therefore, I'm holier than you, I'm more righteous than you, and you, you're just a poor, wretched sinner, la-da-da-da-da-da, write about it on Facebook. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one of you looking to yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he's lying to himself. That's what boastful, challenging envying leads to thinking I'm something dig me when the Bible says the Bible says you're nothing you're just dust the only value you have is the value that Christ places on you but you cannot stand up in your own righteousness and think that God is going to accept you on the basis of your own flesh or your own activity. Now, I'm now going to weed out the wheat from the chaff. Are you ready? Uh, In 22 years of standing here, I virtually never talk about giving, except when it's in the text. The next thing Paul is going to talk about in Galatians 6 is giving. So next week, I'm going to be talking somewhat extensively about you, your money, and the necessity to give. Let's see how many of you show up now next week. (laughs) We're separating the wheat from the chaff. Christ died. He died in the flesh, and he ever lives. You die. You die to your flesh, and you ever live. We're in Christ, Christ in us. I am really, really grateful that God decided to do it that way and make my Savior the basis on which I get to be accepted in heaven. Because if he left it up to me, I'm just going to leave that with a heavy sigh. I'm done.
listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.